You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. Thanks to our underwriter, Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting this program. To find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin, go to our website, kfuo.org, and look for the CUW logo in the sponsor section there. Preparing for the Lutherans for Life conference series, the uh, regional conference is taking place this fall around the country. Now we head to Texas. Dr. Barbara Geistfeld, she's the Lutherans for Life regional director of Texas and a presenter at the upcoming conference in New Braunfels, Texas, presenting on life, a gift from God. Dr. Dr. Geistfeld, welcome to Faith and Family. Thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here, I'll tell you. Tell me about your work with Lutherans for Life. Why did you, uh, why did you join Lutherans for Life as the regional director for Texas? Well, I've been involved with Lutherans for Life as a donor for probably 40 years, my husband and I. Um, I used to be one of the people that thought that uh, abortion was something that I would not do, but if somebody else felt the need to do that, that was their decision. That was my, you know, I was a typical um, product of the 60s and 70s. But somewhere along the line, when I started to think about what that really meant, I realized that um, abortion was not right. And that was my first link with Lutherans for Life was the materials that they had. And of course, as things went on, two years ago, I was um, uh, asked to become the regional director of Texas. And by that time, I was well aware that there were many, many, many other issues besides abortion that the churches and Christian people really needed to address. And I've, I've been given different gifts and talents, one of which is teaching and speaking and writing. And this was just a natural fit for me to try and encourage other people to think about all the life issues instead of focusing on just the one issue of abortion, because that is so divisive. We didn't need to be divided. We need to be united. And that's how I ended up here. So we think of life issues primarily as abortion, uh, but when it comes to respecting life, it's more than that. Tell me about what are the other issues? What okay. will we be learning about at the Lutherans for Life conference in New Braunfels, Texas? All right. One of the first things that came to my mind about, oh, six months ago, I, more than that, maybe 10 months ago, God literally sent me a vision. He sent me a picture in my head of an iceberg, a beautiful iceberg floating in the water. And I realized that if we put abortion on that little tip of the iceberg that is showing, we are missing 90% of the life issues that affect all humans of all ages, old, young, man, woman. Uh, there are many, many more life issues than just abortion. And we are not doing our uh, churches any favors by missing those. And so I started, this got published in Lutherans for Life materials. It got published all over Texas. It got published wherever it was able to be in. And it makes a big difference. I've seen people's faces light up when they look at this picture. I've had pastors hand it off to people in their congregation who are thinking about starting a life team. Some of the issues that are on this iceberg that many people don't even think about as being a life issue is contraception, in vitro fertilization, feeding tubes, health care, 
birth defects, living wills, physician-assisted suicide, sex trafficking, rape, chastity, adoption. These are all life issues that we don't even talk about, and they're affecting far more many people in our churches than abortion does. How are these how are these life issues? Help us make the connection right. to understand. One of the one of the most important things to realize is that life is indeed a gift from God. And this is not a religious statement. This is biology 101. When a sperm and an egg from a human being unite, we have a human being. It slowly develops over nine months in the mom's uterus. And when it is born, it looks like a human being, but it's always been a human being. There is no magic thing that happens in the uterus to turn it from a blastocyst to an embryo to a fetus to a baby. And that is basic biology. And when you believe that, and you believe that God is the author of that life, which is what scripture teaches us, then it affects things like birth control, because you can prevent conception, or you can use a type of, of uh, method that actually aborts the little blastocyst, and it's not contraception at all. It's the same with um, chastity and sexual purity. Most of the abortions happen in unplanned pregnancies when they're outside of marriage. Uh, about a third of our pregnancy, uh, abortions are in teenagers. And if sexual purity was talked about in our churches and the importance of sexual purity uh, was really stressed, we would hope for more unplanned, less unplanned pregnancies and less abortions. Um, rape, sex trafficking, any of these sex crimes frequently respond in unwanted pregnancies, the answer to which is abortion. We can talk about in vitro fertilization, which many, many Christian couples have done. And perhaps they did not know what was really happening because they are so focused on the joy of having that child that they may not know how many children were destroyed to get to that point. If we look at our elderly, health care is going to be rationed more and more unless we do something about that. The elderly are going to be the ones that are cut off. We have to make decisions about feeding tubes, living wills, life support, all those things are life issues. And of course, we've got uh, stem cell research, which is a phenomenal, wonderful thing that has healed tens of thousands of people. But there's a difference between using adult stem cells, which are easily obtained from umbilical blood and other sources, and embryonic stem cells where a egg is fertilized and when it gets to the right stage, those little cells are harvested, which ends the life of that baby and is used for medical research, which as of this date has no healing capability whatsoever. The main thing that these embryonic stem cells will produce is cancer. 
there's there's all kinds of things here. Another big one is physician-assisted suicide. We're telling people that if you are in a lot of pain, you're depressed, your life looks useless, well then let us help us let us help you kill yourself. That is legal now in six states in the United States. Physician-assisted suicide is. The problem there is with counseling, with support from family, with hospice, many of these people would not take that choice unless they were, if they were properly given some options. But our answer to many of these things is kill the patient, kill the unwanted baby. That's what I mean by a culture of death. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? What does... How did we get to this culture of death? What, what is this culture of death that we live in today? How did we get here? Well, I'm, I'm 68 years old, so I was, I was an adult, young adult, before abortion was legalized in 1973. And so if you have a law on the books that says it is okay to kill your unborn children at any age, for any reason, do you not see that the logical sequelae to that statement is life is not valuable? If we, can, if we can kill our unborn children, what's the difference between killing old people that are useless? What's the difference between killing handicapped people that are nothing but a burden? And that's part of the abortion decision. It's incredible how many people, when they find out that their child is a Down syndrome baby or has physical handicaps, will abort the baby rather than try and raise that child to the best of their ability. And not only that, if we are so much in favor of having these babies born, and mind you, many of these are unplanned, unwanted babies, then the church needs to step up and continue to support homes for um, emotionally challenged, physically disabled, uh, unwanted children. We need to be there for them. We need to be more involved in hospice and nursing care and all these things that will take care of the people that are unwanted. The church has got to stand up and continue to do what many churches have been doing for centuries, taking care of the helpless and the unwanted. But I think it started with Roe versus Wade. We said in plain English, there's nothing wrong with killing our unborn children. And that transmits to every single aspect of life. What then do we do as Lutherans who are for life in the midst of this culture of death? What do we do? How do we respond to that culture of death? I think the thing that Lutherans for Life stands for is that we try never to use the words pro-life. I'm making a specific point of that because we are for life. Pro-life has so many negative connotations. And so the first thing we want to do is admit out loud that we are for life, for all life. We care about the babies. We care about the moms, the dads, the grandparents, the handicapped, the elderly. We want all people to know life as full as possible, and that comes through our Christian faith. 
and we want to be gospel-motivated voices for life. When I stand in front of people and I go through all my slides, I know there are people in that audience that have had abortions. I know there are people in that audience that have had children through in vitro fertilization. I know there are people that might have been a surrogate mom. I know there are people that have made decisions about all these things, and I, as a representative of Lutheran for Life, Lutherans for Life, I'm there as the voice of Jesus, who comes in the gospel, who comes in his word and says, if you repent your sins, you are forgiven. You're a new creature. And our, our goal is to speak the truth in love. I'm not there to judge them. I tell them that on and off throughout my whole presentation. I'm not there to judge. But you deserve to know the facts so that as a Christian you can make a godly decision. So the more facts they have, the more reality they have, and the more they can hear us trying to love them no matter what their decision was or has to be, they hear the gospel. We do not want to be the activist, fire-breathing dragon that you see on TV. That's not us. What place does the gospel have in the message of Lutherans for life? It starts with something that we say at our church every single Sunday before we worship. We say from 1 John 1, 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's every single one of us sitting in that room. That's me standing at the front. That's them sitting in their chairs. Each one of us has sinned, does sin, and will sin. And our forgiveness and our mercy comes through the grace of our Lord through Jesus. Everybody needs to hear that. We are in no different than the young woman or man who's made an abortion decision. We are no different than those that are trying to coerce people into committing suicide. We are all in the same condition. And I want people listening to me to know that. And if you appreciate how much God has forgiven you for, it is easier to be a voice of hope and healing for somebody else who needs to hear that same word. Tell me about, tell me of some practical ways to be this gospel-motivated voice for life in this, this world that we live in. What are some practical steps that, that I could take, that any person, any lay person could take, that are you know, realistic ways that, that are practical, that, that I can take to be a gospel-motivated voice for life in my own community? One of the most common ways that churches that I deal with have addressed some of these issues is in their support of crisis pregnancy centers. They are everywhere. They are everywhere. And they need volunteers. They need funds. They need um, publicity. Many, many churches are involved in their local crisis pregnancy centers. And many of them are doing it even though these young women are unmarried or whatever little rules they have broken. Our churches are still recognizing that these people need support. So that's a very important part of something that many churches are already doing. 
Another one is to become involved with the elderly. My husband and I recently went to our local nursing home, and we, uh, he played the banjo and the guitar, and we sang all kinds of songs, uh, songs from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and hymns. And we did this for two hours, and they were so appreciative. We have um, had lawyers come to our church to talk about godly wills, end-of-life decisions, and we intend to do more of that, to open people's eyes to the things that they can do to help our elderly um, get their affairs in order in a godly way. And one of the main jobs that I have here in Texas is to go to pastors and churches, talk to them about life issues, show my PowerPoint, and encourage them to start life teams in their churches. A life team is a small group of people that are gospel-motivated. They want to have their church become more involved in all these different issues on a regular basis, not just a -a once-a-year life Sunday, which is a wonderful thing. That's another thing a church can do, hold a life Sunday once a year and talk about the sanctity of life and how God created it and nurtures it. A life team is somebody that takes training, Lutherans for Life has a wonderful new toolkit that trains people in all the different issues and how to handle it, how to speak about it, how to work among your church with harmony and with gospel-motivated voices. And that's my primary job here in Texas at this point, is to educate people about the reality of life and encourage them to start to speak up in all these different issues with gospel-motivated voices. What will I gain by attending the Lutherans for Life conference coming up in, uh, in well, there are several conferences, but the, particularly the one that you'll be uh, speaking at in New Braunfels, Texas. I think the main, two main things, no matter how long you've been involved in, in supporting life issues and talking about them, you're always going to get another idea, another viewpoint, some kind of encouragement if you attend something like this, because... All of us there are on the same page. We love the people that we want to work with. We love our churches. We want to be gospel-motivated voices. We've got speakers lined up, each one with a different topic. I think the encouragement, the information, the fellowship is all a really good reason to attend, and it's all based on how important life is to God and to each one of us. Any other final thoughts as we uh, look forward to the upcoming uh, Lutherans for Life conference at Cross Lutheran Church on October 7th in New Braunfels, Texas? I think the main thing that I've learned over my last two years is that it isn't my team, it isn't my job specifically, it's God's job, and it's in His time. And I think if we want to be voices for life, the first thing we do is pray and pray and pray. Ask him how he could use me. Each of us should ask God, how can you use me to be a gospel-motivated voice for life in my church? Let's start there because you've got other people in there that agree with you and you're not doing it alone. 
but you need to pray because it's in God's time. Many churches are wildly divided on some of these issues, and you can't just jump in there and start a life team without a lot of prayer and without a lot of support. So pray that God would use you. Pray that he would allow you to be a gospel-motivated voice for life. Start to talk to your pastor about encouraging him to be bold, to speak about life issues. It just starts with one person. Dr. Barbara Geistfeld, Lutherans for Life Regional Director of Texas and also presenter at the New Braunfels, Texas Cross Lutheran Church Conference, uh, Lutherans for Life Conference taking place October 7th at Cross Lutheran Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Dr. Geisfeld, thank you so much for being my guest today and uh, God's blessings on the upcoming conference. Thank you so much for taking the time and we appreciate this so much and I look forward to the conference and reaching out to a lot more people. Thank you so much. Have a blessed day. Concordia University, Wisconsin and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. This summer, my nephew Noah scaled Grand Teton, the crown jewel of the Teton mountain range. I was with his parents at the time and saw how Noah's mom worried throughout the climb. We were so proud of his accomplishment. So were the parents and family of Andrew Harris, who scaled the same summit. I can't imagine the exhilaration when climbers finally get to the top. Such a feat isn't on my bucket list. Andrew's accomplishment will be noted in history books because he happens to have Down syndrome. I rejoice every time an individual with this condition excels because it shows the world they are people who can accomplish great things in life. So we should give them a chance while they're still in the womb. Andrew, you're the man. For more information, visit our website at lifeissues.org and stay informed more informed than you've ever been. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org slash careers. Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Oratio. The dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. 
Do you know how to align your faith with your finances? Hi, this is Rich Robertson, President and CEO of the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Whether you're looking for faith-based financial solutions or ministry resources to guide your growth, we offer the services you need without forfeiting great rates. Lutheran Church Extension Fund offers borrowing solutions for rostered church workers and congregations, support services for your unique ministry, and investment products that serve the church. Learn more at lcef.org. My son Aiden has asthma. Secondhand smoke has triggered his asthma so badly, he ended up in the emergency room and spent multiple nights in intensive care. Now he's on a whole bunch of medications. My tip to you is, don't be shy about telling people not to smoke around your kids. Half of U.S. kids are exposed to secondhand smoke. If you or someone you know wants help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and CDC. Concord Matters is a show seeking agreement in Christian confession. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, one of the hosts of Concord Matters, heard on Worldwide KFUO each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central and a repeat on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Central. We take an in-depth look at the Book of Concord with some fine Lutheran theologians. Concord Matters, live on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Listening to Faith and Family, I'm Andy Bates. The upcoming Lutherans for Life conferences taking place across the country, uh, introducing and providing a number of uh, presentations to help us understand uh, how we care for life. How do we respect and regard life? One of the speakers at the upcoming event in Texas, the conference in Texas, and the conference in Illinois, Dr. Sheila Page, Associate Scholar with the Charlotte Lozier Institute and Board Certified in Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine and Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine. Dr. Page, welcome back to Faith and Family. Thank you. Pleasure to have you with us today. Tell us about your work as a physician in uh, neuromusculoskeletal medicine and osteopathic manipulative medicine. Well, um, the, I uh, treat patients using manipulative therapy, which is um, largely with my hands. And um, in general, I'm balancing ligamentous tension in people with injuries or um, problems that are most of the time causing pain, but also leading to neurological effect or um, neurological disorders. And so um, I treat a wide range of patients, including infants and um, the elderly, and I reach out to those that are also um, suffering from terminal illnesses and uh, at the end of life so that I can help improve the quality of their lives. As a physician, how do you how does your vocation relate to or what is your your understanding of life and that the connection between your vocation as a physician and uh, your understanding of how we regard life uh, the sanctity of life how does well, that how does that I, shape I, your <laughs> how does that shape your vocation it it only adds to uh, the way I treat people as far as the value that I have for them. My understanding of, of just humanity, um, 
how we how we develop in the earliest stages and the magnificent magnificence really of the design of the human body just raises the level of appreciation I have for um, the individuality of every person. And as I study and I learn from each person, I, I, um, I've just learned to value every person's life experience and individuality. Um, and I use what I learned from them to treat them. As a scholar, I, I gather you, you study, you specialize in an area. Tell me about uh, the areas that, that you specialize and uh, what, um, what you study most and why you've chosen to study in that area. Well, I, the reason I, I looked at the issue of the pain perception in the developing human was because um, of the laws that we were trying to pass to ban abortions before 20 weeks with, and the reasoning being that you have a human being at that time capable of feeling pain who would be subjected to a torturous, painful experience in the process of abortion. And there was a need to develop scientific understanding so that there was, there would be, support for that concept of pain perception in a developing human because uh, I don't know I think it's been about 20 years now since people really thought that the unborn child could not feel pain and we know that because many of the people who treated premature babies um, and did other procedures on them trying to save their life had that concept in their mind that they, the child couldn't feel pain and they did procedures on them that would have been understood to be extremely painful to you and I, but they had the belief that the babies couldn't feel pain and they did them without anesthesia. Now they know that that was wrong. Probably the babies they were treating were so weak that they didn't, they didn't respond accordingly to, to the treatment, but now they realize that they were wrong and they take every measure possible to prevent pain in little preemies and 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 also when they do surgeries uh, in utero on on little babies that need help. Tell me about that uh, the research that that uh, that's happened in the last decade regarding pain perception and how we've come to learn that uh, and and what that means for us today. So the research that I've looked at goes all the way back actually to the 30s. It's not a new idea that for a long time, I think doctors believe that babies did feel pain. I don't know when that transition was made where um, there was a general understanding that perhaps they did not feel pain, but for a long time, they really believed that they did. And the older research indicates that they were uh, trying to determine how early the baby could feel pain. It was probably 10 to 20 years ago when the politics of abortion and trying to support the whole concept of abortion created, I guess, the motivation to produce papers in the medical literature that would make the statement that an unborn child cannot feel pain. Therefore, there's no humanitarian issue 
when you're considering abortion techniques like dismemberment and and even injecting or, or other ways that they they end that baby's life. And so those papers were created in order to promote the idea that an unborn child cannot feel pain. And so what we needed to do is go back actually to the original science and the original understanding of the development of the human being and the development of the neurological system and even as far back as embryological stages and how is it functional and when is it functional. And that's where you find um, the truth. Uh, all of the research that we've had recently and we continue to add to the, the body of research on that subject only affirms again and again and again that you have a sentient being that's developing in the womb, that a human being is very, very sensitive to its environment, and yes, it is capable of feeling pain at an early age. Are there still widespread misconceptions about uh, pain perception in those early stages in in the uh, the early developing human in the womb? I think there are. I um, I don't know if there are a lot of medical persons who honestly believe that, but they might. I I think though we have so much research just in the area of surgeries for the unborn child uh, as early as 19 weeks that um, shows that they are responding in, in a way that's, that is appropriate or what you would expect for someone that's feeling pain when at the touch of a surgical instrument. This, the physicians that have observed this have no doubt that that unborn baby feels pain. And, and they take measures, like I said, they take every measure possible to prevent that child from feeling pain. So I, I think there may still be people who believe that, but I don't know for sure. I, I, I think that the problem is the literature that's been out there, even though it's been refuted by multiple authors, still can be used um, if someone would like to. They can still try to point to that literature and say, well, there's pain perception centers in this area of the brain and that's not functional at a certain age, therefore the child can't feel pain, which is part of the problem. The errors are being repeated again and again instead of being refuted and put to rest. Give us the, the facts that we might dispel those myths, those misconceptions about uh, pain perception in early developing humans. What is, uh, so far, what is uh, the, the earliest that we, we believe that, that an early developing human can perceive pain? Well, there are, there's a little bit of a variation in, in the different authors as far as agreement on that. There's, there's not a lot of agreement depending on what the focus is of that author. For example, if you're looking at stress response um, in the unborn child and you're measuring it by hormonal levels, they can only measure them as far as about 18 weeks. And so they're, they're saying, well, I can definitely say that at this stage that baby is responding um, by releasing stress hormones to a painful stimulus. But 
that's only as far as you can measure. That's only what we're capable of measuring in that context of looking at stress hormones. So what I looked at was the development um, of the the neurological system and that pain perception system. And when when is it fully developed and, and when is it functioning? And that's where you have a totally different perspective of, of how you view the capability of that unborn child to feel pain. So let me just try to explain. When, when first of all, there's a misconception that um, the human being is formed by assembly of parts that turn on at certain times or turn off. Or, and, and that's not true. From the beginning, as one cell, it grows as one unit. So the neurological system grows and develops as a whole. The brain, spinal cord, and all the peripheral nerves develop as one unit that is functioning when it appears. So all of the structures in the embryo are functional at the time that that they appear. Uh, And when we can observe that they are present within a few weeks of development, when we observe certain structures, they are functioning at that time. And it's very consistent with every organ system in the body. And the neurological system is not different in that way. It, it is functional at the time that it appears and it develops as a whole, as a unit. And so you really can't say, well, these nerves aren't connected at this time, therefore there's no pain perception because those if those nerves are there, they're part of a unit that's already functioning when they appear. And that is really obvious about seven and a half weeks. So at seven and a half weeks in the embryological stage, the um, pain perception system really enlarges and expands and spreads throughout the whole body of the embryo in a rapid it's at a rapid pace in a few days, and it's you you can visualize it in in the um, the histological uh, evidence that we have that it, within that few days that whole system just rapidly expands and spreads to the whole body. So it's functioning at that time, and the problem that we have is we can't really relate to the pain experience of a little baby at that phase when it's, yes, it appears human, but it's so, so tiny. And so um, we, that's kind of a limitation of our ability to imagine or visualize or even conceive that perhaps that little tiny infant would feel pain, right? Or the little in, tiny embryo, but, um, it's only our limitation that doesn't change the truth. It doesn't change the reality that this little human being is very sophisticated, very highly advanced at that stage that they, every organ system in their body is present. It, it and can be identified and labeled with the same nomenclature that we use for adults. It's, it's already developed. It's only becoming more sophisticated enlarging and growing in size and in some some of the systems yes change between um the pre-born stage to infancy but 
or at birth, really, some of the systems will change. But for the most part, they can all be labeled with the same nomenclature that we use for an adult anatomy. Why is it important to understand the human embryo developing as a whole and not just an assembly of parts? Why is it important to understand this as a whole? Because some of the misconceptions are that, yes, you might have a thalamus, which is part of that pain perception system, but they're saying, well, we don't see at this stage um, that there is a connection that we would recognize as a mature neurological connection. It, it, creates a, it creates this erroneous idea that perhaps the brain may form or parts of the brain form, but they're not functioning together yet. And um, the same with any parts of the body. None of it appears and then attaches itself. It, it all grows as a unit in a continuum. And in fact, what grows and shapes that human brain is the motion that you see in the embryo at the early stage, which is one of the most beautiful parts of the development that I think um, has been demonstrated, especially through the work of um, Dr. Blechschmidt, who was a scientist in Germany, and he did it with a um, series of histological uh, sections in studying the, the change and the growth and the movement um, by the number of sections that he did of embryos. And he, could, and he was showing that there's a biodynamic to their development that we don't really understand well, but that motion really does shape what's going on in the baby. For example, when the little hands are, are forming, the skeletal components of the hands outpace the fascia. And this is in the embryological stage. I'm saying before eight weeks. So, so the bones are, are growing faster than the fascia, which is that tough tissue that you see on the palm. And so when the bones are growing longer, the fascia pulls. It creates a pull on the little fingers, and they start to bend and fold inward. And at that time, there's no ligaments and there's no joints. So the, the pulling creates the ligaments. A fluid line develops, and then cells line up around it, and they create a ligament around that line of force. And in the places where the fingers are bending, the joints form. And that bending uh, and straightening occurs, actually. It's a motion back and forth as the different elements are growing at different rates. So one side will outpace the other, and it creates that motion. It's, it's fascinating to understand that once you've studied it. So you start to get the picture that this motion is occurring, and it's created by different different forces on the developing human by growth differentials in the cells by fluid forces um within that whole uh unit there there's fluid forces that are forming and pushing and shaping and pulling and the baby is just being stretched and bent and turned and it's as if these unseen hands are shaping coaching even because you see them trying to looks like they're trying to run um, or, or jump or play even in the womb. As, and, and this is early, early. I'm t you know, at 10 weeks, you see this motion. And um, all of the little gestures that they're making at that 10-week uh, 
stage and, and past that become more and more refined with time. So again, that motion is being practiced and rehearsed. It's getting more elegant and more smooth and, and rhythmical and more recognizable as human behavior with time. Um, and, and that's a concept that people don't really understand. But again, you need that. You need that understanding of how the, the human is developed. So you don't have this limitation that we put on that baby that if, if these parts don't look to us like they're connected the way we think they ought to be, then you can't possibly be experiencing this at that time. And it's just not true. The, it, they develop as one unit. And um, the things that they're experiencing in the womb are, are just adding to their understanding and their ability to respond to the environment. Speaking of understanding, how important is it for to have a clear definition of pain, um, how important is it for us to be clear in our definition and not have differing definitions of pain? Uh, That's a a really good question because you you can shape policy and you can shape the direction of your study by your definition. If you decide that um, pain perception is a psychological uh, entity, that it is an experience that's psychological and it's based on things that we learn, then you'll never really be able to identify what makes some people feel pain and others not because so many people have varying responses to pain. And yes, those responses are learned and they are shaped by our experiences in life. However, that doesn't change pain perception and it doesn't change the concept of cell damage and when you look at an objective scientific definition of pain and you realize that it's damage to tissue that creates a response a a signal and um, that signal is perceived in the lower brain centers by a human being as pain and it and and then they respond to that and they respond with anxiety and they withdraw from the stimulus and and they are perceiving this pain. And that is a very predictable relationship to cell damage to the response. And the the signal is, is received when cell damage occurs. That's very different and that allows us to identify the same elements in an unborn child that we see in everybody that's walking around. We see that I can, I can tell that one person is who's telling me they feel pain has had cell damage and they have an intact nervous system. This is the same thing that you would be able to identify in an unborn child. They have an intact nervous system and you can demonstrate whether or not cell damage has occurred. However, a person who's 25 years old, who's playing football may have a lot of painful experiences and never quite respond the way another person would, but they're still, they, you can still say, yes, cell damage has occurred. Tissue damage has occurred and their, their nervous system is intact. They just didn't respond the same. That's a, that's a different concept and that's response to pain. Um, but when you want to, when you define pain, um, by, by the scientific observation of cell damage and the nervous system response, it, it allows you 
to have a clear understanding of what pain means. Whereas if you stick it in a psychological realm, it becomes very cloudy and, and extremely difficult to categorize. Why should we attend the Lutherans for Life conferences uh, that are coming up? You'll be at the Lutherans for Life conference in New Braunfels, Texas, and Pekin, Illinois, and uh, just in the near future. Why should we attend? What will we learn? The, I, the ones that I have been to have had just really incredible speakers that have a wide variety of perspectives on on issues related to life and um I have I have learned a lot uh, by going to the conferences, and so I think if you're interested in the issues of sanctity of life, both um, end of life and um, preborn, uh, and in all everything in between, really, it it is a very enlightening conference to go to, and the people that it, that are putting the conference together, really work hard to make sure that it's a meaningful experience for everyone that comes. My guest today, Dr. Sheila Page. She is the associates, she's associate scholar with the Charlotte Lozier Institute, board certified in neuromusculoskeletal medicine and osteopathic manipulative medicine. Dr. Page, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you. The Reverend Michael Salamink, Executive Director of Lutherans for Life. Pastor Salamink, welcome back to Faith and Family. Hello, Andy. So, first conference, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Concordia Theological Seminary, September 16th. Then, in on October 7th, the next conference, New Braunfels, Texas, at Cross Lutheran Church. Uh, we're so happy to be hosted by a congregation, and they have been very enthusiastic about it from the beginning. Very good. Cross Lutheran Church, New Braunfels, Texas, in October. Then, we head to Lincoln, Nebraska. Nebraska Redeemer Lutheran Church, October 21st. Is that right? That is correct. And uh, the conference at Redeemer is one that provides a unique opportunity because uh, the, the night before that conference, we'll have a concert at St. John Lutheran Church of Seward, Nebraska. Um, that concert will be the band Remedy Drive. Uh, that's familiar to a lot of our listeners, uh, a Christian band. Um, so they're performing a conference, and then their lead singer is involved in efforts to end human sex trafficking, and so he's going to be one of our presenters as well. So a unique opportunity we have there. And that's in uh, Nebraska, Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lincoln, October 21st. The, the last conference... Pekin, Illinois, did I get that right? Pekin, which is near Peoria. Uh, think West Central Illinois. All right, St. John's Lutheran Church in Pekin, Illinois. Uh, I recall seeing uh, Hillary in the video announcing this and, and mm -hmm. her trying to announce Pekin, Illinois, numerous times. Right. We're all we're all more familiar with Pekin pie, um, but this is not that kind of Pekin. November 11th uh, is uh, the St. John's Lutheran Church uh, is the location in Pekin. In Illinois for the Lutherans for Life. That's the last Lutherans for Life conference mm -hmm. for this year. That's right. And uh, what's really wonderful is that uh, I am the only presenter who is appearing at all four. So we have a variety uh, of different presenters on different topics from um, abortion pill reversal. So doctors, researchers have developed a protocol for be able, being able to intervene after uh, a woman has ingested the first 
uh, abortion pill that causes chemical abortions. It is possible uh, to save that child's life if that woman changes her mind, uh, if she has regret. So we're going to hear about that. We're going to hear about um, the Christian church and and our crusade to talk about uh, life and sexual ethics. We're going to talk about human development. We're going to talk about how uh, we go about um, discussing these difficult things uh, with our uh, with our um acquaintances in our social networks. We're going to, of course, hear about what does creation have to do? How can we um, speak confidently in the public square? What is embryo adoption? And and, uh, how can the church uh, address that sort of thing? We're going to hear from somebody who leads uh, a network of pregnancy resource centers. So just a wide variety of encouraging, uplifting, and informing sessions. Registration information all on lutheransforlife.org. Is that correct? Absolutely. You can register entirely online. Uh, and uh, we also have information about uh, lodging availability and directions and all those sorts of things that you'll need. You can see uh, who is speaking at each of the and the topics being presented at each of the regional conferences. Mm-hmm. So you can check that out as well on lutheransforlife.org uh, and make your registration as well on the website. Get information on lodging. All uh, to, well, all to do right now <laughs> so that you can attend one of these conferences coming up very soon, September 16th in Fort Wayne, Indiana, October 7th in New Braunfels, Texas, October 21st in Lincoln, Nebraska, and November 11th in Pekin, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have information on the speakers, uh, what they'll be presenting on, where they come from, what they know, uh, and then... Um, we're all looking forward to 2018 when we will gather all together for a national conference again in the center of the United States, the holy city, St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> the Reverend Michael Selamink, Executive Director, Lutherans for Life. Pastor Selamink, thanks so much for sharing with us about the upcoming conferences. I'm looking forward to them. Thanks for the opportunity and the conversation. Listen to Faith and Family Monday through Friday at this time. Faith and Family is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is needed for Faith and Family to continue. Our address is 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can contact us on the web and download Faith and Family at KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand.